Welcome. This is the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. I'm reading from Swami Kriyanandaji's book, Demystifying Patanjali, which is a, the most practical, clear interpretation of these great sutras. Tonight we're on the second book, Sadhana Pada, The Way to Samadhi. Stanza one, Patanjali writes, accepting pain as purification, study of the scriptures and introspection, openness to the divine will and guidance and acceptance of them. These constitute the practice of yoga. Now this goes against what many people think of the practice of yoga. Acceptance of pain as purification is the practice of yoga. That's a surprise based on what people think of their conception of yoga as something easy and flowy and more of the physical yoga postures, which it also is, because these things, as we practice them, can help us understand these things. But it's just very interesting how Patanjali puts these three very practical things that we can work on, which constitute the practice of yoga. And this is very important to understand. This is this great exponent of yoga is telling us what constitutes the actual practice of yoga. Accepting pain is purification. What does that mean? <clears throat> I think this may be the most difficult and important one in many ways. Everyone goes through pain. And it's not just enough to go through it and come out the other side, maybe bitter about it and receiving it not in a very gracious, gracious way. And that's natural. I think we all have gone through that. But Patanjali is saying that to accept it as purification with calmness, even with joy, is what Swami Kriyanandaji advises in this. And this is a high demand on us. I'll read what Swamiji writes because this especially is very important to understand. And I have found this really, really helpful in my life. Swamiji says, interpreting this particular stanza, pain is a universal experience for all mankind. For some, the pain is intense. For others, it is relatively minor. The pains we endure are a karmic balance for pains we have inflicted on others. Pain in itself, however, doesn't bring much spiritual freedom. The important thing is to accept it calmly and willingly, even joyfully. We should see it as God's will for us and as an expression of his love. When we can accept equably whatever suffering comes to us, we shall remove ourselves from the sphere of pain altogether. Remember these words of my guru, circumstances are always neutral. They seem either good or bad, happy or sad, depending entirely on our reaction to them. <clears throat> and so people try to avoid pain in many ways. They try to deaden the pain. They try to kill the pain. This is why people self-medicate with alcohol, with drugs, with other ways of just avoiding it and not having to face it. And so Patanjali is showing us the way out and Swami Kriyanandaji is showing us how to transcend and rise above the effects that pain have on us because pain is neutral. All circumstances are neutral. And so he's advising us, it's our reactions 
to things that happen to us, and in particular, we're talking about pain, that really is the most important thing. And it's the one thing we have control over. We don't have control over often what comes into our life. Life goes along smoothly, suddenly we have an accident or a disaster or a health challenge, we experience pain. And we don't have control over that typically. What we do have control over is our response and our reaction. Now, yoga, especially Kriya Yoga, teaches us to learn how to control the reactive process, which is the emotional reactions to all the ups and downs of this world, both positive and negative. Because we can't just try to react neutrally to pain and then react giddily and happily when pleasure and all the sense pleasures come and indulge in that and then be very calm when pain comes. It just, unfortunately, doesn't work that way. I say unfortunately because we all like to just enjoy and have pleasure and, and not have pain. But this is just the nature of dvaita, of duality, that to the extent that we indulge in pleasure and the, all the emotional highs, we have to experience its opposite in the lows. And when pain comes, if we can learn to accept it as coming from God or even from the guru to help us, to guide us, and I'll talk about this more at length because I found this personally the most helpful practice, the way to practice what Patanjali is advising, then we can find these things can actually help us and help to liberate us. <clears throat> about 10 years ago, I was experiencing a chronic pain condition and I went to a lot of doctors and they finally diagnosed it as uh, it's a pain of the facial nerve here and it comes from the base of the brain and doctors and when you read about it, everyone calls it the most painful condition that there is. The common name, which is a really bad common name for something is suicide disease because that's what people think of when they experience this pain. And it was overwhelming to me. I didn't think of it as something that I could escape by just killing my body because I would have to face it again. And, but I had to learn how to deal with it because it was overwhelming. I couldn't do the usual things. I couldn't sit up and meditate. I couldn't even function at times because it was so intense and you know there was nausea and dizziness and I couldn't even function in life. There was fear because I thought, wow, but this is a lifelong condition. How am I going to deal with the rest of my life? And it's gone in remission most of the time since then. But for a few years, it was there a lot. I mean, a few times a month for a few days, I would be on my back and, and just there with the pain itself. That was all in front of me because I couldn't do anything else. I couldn't distract myself. I couldn't sit up and meditate, do Hong Sa or Kriya or all the techniques. And so I could only face it in a way that I could learn to transcend it. And as a yogi, I've learned that I just, I couldn't just take painkillers in this condition, particularly painkillers don't work even. And so what I found was that one, I had to go to God. I prayed to God as the Divine Mother. And so I prayed to the Divine Mother and that's all I could do was just put myself at her feet and talk to her about this and offer it to her and offer her my unconditional love. And it took a long time to get to this point. It took a lot of ways of trying to figure out how to solve it and fix it and you know, get the right doctor. And I mean, it went through a lot of different ways of dealing with it. But in the end, I 
I couldn't avoid it. I had to face it and deal with it and transcend it really in the end. And this is what I found, that when I prayed and let go of my own fear and what I was experiencing and, and learned just to give my love and just, you know, Divine Mother, I'm your child. What you're giving me, I don't know what kind of a mother you are to give a child something like this, but I trust that you're my mother. And I gave her my unconditional love. And in that process, I felt so much joy that the pain didn't go away. What it did do is it receded into the background. For many years, I've used the, a program called Photoshop. And you can do different layers of photos. And you can, once, and this was in Pune, and I was by myself driving. And when I, when I drive by myself, I tend to get very introspective. And I was at a long Pune traffic light, as those who have been in Pune, there's some really long traffic lights. And, and so there was the usual beggars there, you know, begging and coming and offering things. But there was one man, and I'm used to that, you know, after some many years of living in India, these things don't, you know, bother me in any way. But there was one man, for some reason, it was very poignant. He was very elderly. He was um, physically disabled. He looked to be mentally disabled. He was, you know, selling pens or pencils or something. But it was obvious that he was just uh, on his own and really suffering. And it, it really touched my heart. And I just prayed to Divine Mother. I just said, what were you thinking to just have so many children? I mean, you're not even paying attention. This is your child, and you know, you're not helping him. And I can pray very irrever irreverently sometimes. And I said, you know, you had way too many children. We have, we have ways of, of dealing with that kind of thing here, of not having too many children. You should do that. And you can't pay attention to so many. And I went through that for a while, and it was done lovingly. I was really trying to find an answer to what this person was going through. But then, as I was sitting there at a very long traffic light, luckily it was a really long traffic light because I could be sitting there for a long time, almost meditating and praying. And I, I heard a voice in my, in my mind, and I think it was just, I think it was God speaking through my intuition. It wasn't like some voice of God coming to me, but I do believe it was Divine Mother talking to me. And what I heard was very clear and very specific and extraordinarily loving. And those words were, I give each one exactly what they need. And I still, those words still are very powerful for me because and I believe they were true. God gives each one and does pay attention to each of us and is paying attention to each one of us exactly exactly what they need, not vaguely, exactly, and then what they need and not what they deserve. We think of karma as some sort of punishment, but it's what we need to be able to grow spiritually. And again, this is not advice you can point to someone else because that's just cruelty to to look at someone, yeah, this is just what you need to get uh, smashed like that. But we can, when, when that hand comes to us, we can ask God, okay, I, I need this. And I believe that that man, I think he understood because there was a free, an inner freedom in him to some extent that I think he understood that this is what he needed to grow. And yeah, if I could help him in some way, I would have, but it wasn't mine to do. But I've learned that when something comes to us, it is what we need. 
And I've just seen this throughout my life. And those of you who follow a guru, who follow Yogananda, you can trust that he's guiding our lives. He's sort of metering out our karma at the right time to help us in the right way, to help us grow. And so we need these lessons to grow spiritually. This is the practicality of the spiritual path, of the path of yoga, is that these things come to us when we need them, but at the same time, the power to transcend is also given to us. And when we see these things as coming from the hand of God, from the Guru, I've seen that we can also see that the, the grace to, um, that, that comes to us with this gift, even though it looks like a, a pain or a, a suffering, it also is given to help us. Both are given at the same time. And so I found this so helpful. Swami Kriyananda tells of the time when he was thrown out of his guru's organization and it was intense suffering for him. He just could not comprehend why such a thing would happen. And he wrote a letter to the Bengali saint Ananda Moima and asked her, how can, I, how can I look at this and see this? I just don't understand. And she wrote back, and she said, try to see this as your guru's grace. And Swamiji said at the time, it was the last thing he could see, was to see this as his guru's grace. But then over time, he realized and understood that that was exactly what he needed to take his next step, to start Ananda, to grow spiritually, to develop his own inner strength and also his own deeper connection to his guru. And this has been a mantra in my life uh, for many years. And I shared this story here at our ashram uh, last night, maybe yesterday. My wife, who suffered from cancer and left the body from it, and she suffered, you know, worked through it for 10 years. And she also, her, her, her mantra was Guru's grace. Anything that came to her life, to our lives, good or bad, Guru's grace, Guru's grace, based on that story of Swami Kriyanandaji. And in the end, it was for her because it helped her to become free. It, I believe that maybe it helped her to finish the last of her karma and to develop great, extraordinary inner strength and inner freedom. And so those of us who are trying to make great spiritual strides, these things do come to us to really help us make great spiritual strides in this lifetime. And again, at the same time, these great masters of yoga, Patanjali, Yogananda, Swami Kriyananda, they've given the tools, the techniques, the power, and the grace to help us to learn to transcend and overcome all these tests and challenges. And I'll read one more thing that Swamiji writes in his interpretation. So remember, yoga doesn't free us from our karma. It frees us from susceptibility to whatever suffering karma might otherwise cause us. Karma doesn't oblige us to suffer. It merely obliges us to experience the ups and downs we caused others to go through in the past. And Paramahansa Yogananda writes about the way to freedom because we sometimes think that the way to freedom is to work out all our karma. But no, that's actually not the way. He talks about the state of the Jivan Mukta, who still has karma, but he's inwardly free from the effects of that karma. And because the Jivan Mukta is free from desire, attachment, 
reactivity, likes and dislikes. They create no new karma. But more importantly, the karma that comes, the pain that comes, doesn't cause a hint of suffering or anguish or any of those things because everything is neutral. Circumstances are neutral, good and bad. And the, the, the yogi, the jivanmukta yogi, is free in their heart. They feel joy in their heart under all, or all circumstances, all conditions. They've, they've used the, the Photoshop trick to bring the bliss and the joy to the front, no matter what they're going through. And the other recedes so far into the background that when karma, pain, suffering comes, they're not touched by it. And this is a state of divine freedom. And one never falls from that state. Then, of course, Yoganandaji said that the Jivan Mukta can work out all the rest of their karma, even in a single meditation or in a single lifetime, because they're able to do that at that point. And again, they are inwardly free. They say that the yogi in that state, their actions are like writing on water, and it leaves no impression anymore, because they also act from this acting from the divine will and not acting from ego. So that's another key to learning to transcend is that by acting, by serving others, by giving to others, and not acting for our own ego-driven motives, that action itself is liberating because it dissolves the ego. And in a sense, what it does is it, it expands this little sense of self. And by giving to others and seeing God in others, in everyone, it starts to expand this little sense of self and dissolve it in a way and helps us to see God in all, in everything, in ourselves. In Yoganandaji's Samadhi poem, he, he talks about, I, the cosmic sea, watch the little ego floating in me. And this is the way of yoga. It really is. And it's very practical. All these things, again, this constitute the practice of yoga, is what Patanjali is saying. And it's very important to understand that these things truly are Practice is practical. That's what practice means. It's a, it's a practical application of what is not just a philosophy. It's really a guidebook on a guideline on how to live our lives and how to be free in our lives. I'll go to the next of these three things that Patanjali recommends as the practice of yoga. Study of the scriptures and introspection is the second one. Swadhyaya, which is usually interpreted as study of the scriptures, but is Yoganandaji taught it's really study of the self and introspection. And this also is a necessity on the practice of yoga. Swami Kriyananda wrote a book called Sadhu Beware, which I would really recommend for everybody. Because I, I teach a lot about Kriya Yoga and I direct Ananda's Kriya Sangha for many years, people ask me what which of all these books that Yoganandaji, Swami Kriyanandaji wrote, which are the best books for the Kriya Yogi? And I always recommend three. Autobiography of a Yogi as really a fantastic book on the path of Kriya Yoga and this whole great teachings. Swami Kriyanandaji's Essence of the Bhagavad Gita Explained, which really talks about, again, the path of Raja Yoga. But the third one is a different one. It's Sadhu Beware. Because too many yogis, they withdraw from the world, but it's, it's easy to uh, fool oneself 
and withdraw into your own ego and just ignore everybody else. Swamiji uh, sort of half jokes about this, about the yogi who says, all is Ram, all is Ram, and you know, seeing God and everything, and if someone experiences pain and they're really suffering, he just says, all is Ram, all is Ram, and just tries to help them that way, not in an enlightened way, but when the yogi feels pain, this type of yogi, they don't say all is Ram, they say, ouch, that really hurts. And it's not indifference to other suffering is not what yoga is. And it takes really introspection and self-awareness to see whether we're fooling ourselves on the path of yoga and just live, you know, pretending to have a philosophy and live by it, but whether we are actually practicing it. And it really means living the teachings. And so Satu Beware talks about becoming an ego detective, the way Swamiji puts it. And he has these techniques of ego transcendence, which I just, these are the best practices for a yogi wanting to overcome ego. It doesn't matter whether you're a sadhu or a renunciate or anything. If you want to be free of suffering, free of the bondage and the attachment to ego, work on these techniques of ego transcendence. And they really are a reality check to how well we're doing. And introspection can be um, for some people, it can be a little bit self-inflicting in a way and self-judging and being unkind with ourselves. And it can seem harsh. And I think maybe that's why many people avoid introspection because we do have to be honest with ourselves when we introspect. But it's important to do it in a kindly way towards ourselves. And so when we see a fault and when we see a shortcoming with one of these practices of ego transcendence. And when you read these techniques, you see, oh my God, yeah, I do that all the time. And just you, you sort of think, maybe I should read another book that's a little bit more comfortable for me to read. But if you can do it in a kindly way, kind to yourself, and just when you see a fault in yourself, just try to feel like, you know, talk to your ego and say, ah, ego, I caught you. You, you can't fool me, you got me this time, but I, I'm, I'm on to your tricks. And so just try to find a way to maybe be a little impersonal about it and not identify with our faults. And that's very, very important, is to not identify with our shortcomings, our failings. This is a, a problem for many people. We think, oh, I'm a bad person, or I'm you know, a lazy person, or I'm a negative person, or I'm an angry person. And we I, I, uh, define ourselves by our faults sometimes. And so just when we see something like that, when we see a reaction, an anger, or some egotistical response to something and pride in some way, just say, okay, that's, that's just mud over my, over my soul. And Mr. Ego, yeah, I'm onto your game again. And let's move on and get out of the way. And, and Swamiji, the way he puts it, when we see a fault in ourselves, rather than being disappointed, and isn't that how we tend to respond when we finally discover that we, this you know, great spiritual quality that we thought we had, actually we're getting overly proud, or maybe it's not as good as we thought, and we get a little disappointed, and oh my God, I just, I've been so awful to people, or whatever, we just respond that way. And the way Swamiji says, when we see a fault in ourselves, he says, clap your hands with joy and say, ah, one more thing I've, I've come aware of and I can now get rid of it. Because it's always been there. It's, you know, it's not like 
you know, suddenly you created it. It's always been there. And so when we discover it, we should be pleased because then we can work on it and work on getting rid of it. And that step is the most important one to overcoming these kinds of faults is being aware of them. And just you see this with, with children, with friends who are completely oblivious to a fault that they have. And sometimes it's just a matter of discovering it finally and seeing it. And we don't want to be pointing out other people's faults. This is not the purpose of the introspection. It's to kind of look at our own things. But again, try to do it in a kind-hearted way and just be kind to ourselves. And part of that is to be kind to others. If we do see a fault in others, because when we start reading these techniques of ego transcendence, yeah, we do start to see other people doing some of these things and just you know, just have fun with it and just, oh yeah, I can see that and then maybe look at ourselves again. Say, oh yeah, I do that too sometimes, don't I? And just when we work with ourselves in this way, we can make a lot of progress at overcoming our shortcomings and transcending them. It's also very helpful to practice what Yoganandaji recommended, which is he said, give your faults to God. And this, he was very strong about that. He said, when you find a fault in yourself, you make a mistake, he said, give it to Divine Mother. You know, she, you know, the way he said it, he, he did this booming prayer to Divine Mother, and he said, Lord, thou hast created us against our will. Free us. That is our prayer. And he would blame God for faults, you know, just, uh, and he said, God likes it when we blame God for our faults. And it doesn't mean that we can avoid dealing with these things, but the fact is, is that, isn't it true that when we find a fault or when we indulge in a desire or attachment that we know is not good, that we tend to hide from God, we tend to hide from the guru, and you know, we have a whole tub of ice cream and we see the guru and say, like, oh God, Master, you're not happy with me. And, and what Yogananda is saying is go to God during those times. And, and Swamiji, when he said when you're having ice cream and maybe overindulging in it, to use an example, just do it with God and say, okay, Lord, I'm, I can't avoid this attachment that I have and I'll do it with you in front of you. Yogananda had a, a student when he had his school in Ranchi and the student smoked cigarettes and Yogananda was aware of it and he said, oh, I know you're smoking and the boy denied it for a while and finally says, Yogananda just said to him, all I ask of you, I'm not asking you to stop smoking. All I ask of you is that when you do smoke, come here with me and smoke here with me in my room. That's all I ask of you. But you can smoke as much as you want. And the boy started doing that and soon enough he dropped it because there he was in front of his guru and his guru wasn't judging him at all. He was just as kind and loving. And, but he realized that there's this great light and I don't need to do this anymore. And this light I feel from God is much greater than this attachment. And so when we have a fault, put it into the light of God. That's, that's really what Yoganandaji was teaching with this lesson. When we have a, something that we just have difficulty overcoming, do it in the light of God, in front of God, rather than hiding it. Because really, when we, anytime we turn away from God, we, we turn away from the light and we just sort of turn towards the darkness in a way, just, which is just the absence of light in this case. And so this is partly, large part, why Yoganandaji said, 
give your faults to God because anything that we offer into the light of God starts, that light starts to dissolve and starts to heal the darkness and really to expand again our littleness and this ego attachment that we have for this little self and desire, attachment, anger, all this littleness and faults that we have. So the third one that Patanjali recommends that constitutes the practice of yoga, openness to the divine will and guidance and acceptance of them. Openness to the divine will and guidance and acceptance of them. The God sent the guru to guide us and he's talking about being open to listening to what the guru guides us and it doesn't have to be a guru speaking with a voice and having a body. It can be tuning into the, the lessons and the scriptures and the teachings of, of a great master. But it also means just having this developing an inward relationship with God and praying regularly, Lord, I want, I want your guidance. Help me with this. I found in the last few years that I'm working with helping to develop a new kind of monastery that Swami Kriyanandaji wanted for his monks and just a different, completely different approach than Ananda has ever done. And Swami Kriyananda wrote about how to do it but in the day-to-day -day process, year-to-year -year process of getting it established, not all the, the answers are in the book. And this is something that we just need to learn, that not all answers to our problems are going to be in the index of the book and we can find it in the book. We have to pray for that guidance. And it's partly because God is wanting us to develop our own intuitive understanding and our own deep relationship and intuitive receptive relationship to God and to the guru. And so I've learned that there's three steps in this process in the last couple of years. One is simply to ask. I mean, how few people ask God? Most people advise God on, on how God should be doing things and fixing things, and I do that sometimes, so I confess guilt with that myself. But how many people ask God or the guru, guide me? I, I really, I want to hear you. I need to know from you, what do you want me to do? And how few people do that. And I've seen that when people, when we do that, God and the guru just like, finally, someone's asking me. And that's why they came was so that we would ask and, and tune into them. So that's the first step, to ask regularly all the time. The second step is to listen. And how few people listen. You know, we ask God and we think we got the answer, but really it's our own desires and ego. You know, our likes and dislikes was the real answer. And so that listening means it takes great receptivity. And that listening, rarely is God going to come and speak to us in a booming voice. And I think this is, people want that. And that's why people have the wish for, a, quote, a living guru, even if it's not a very enlightened person. They want someone, you know, telling them what to do. But this is really, again, listening with the voice of our intuition. The intuition is this feeling of the heart. And so God will guide us if we just really receptively listen to, for that guidance. So ask, listen. This comes in stillness. It comes in meditation. The 
the definition of yoga that Patanjali gives in the beginning is yoga sthita vritti narod, which is the, the calming of the waves, the vrittis, the feeling of the heart. And so when our own likes and dislikes are calmed in meditation, that's the, the background static that blocks the, the, the calm, intuitive guidance of God helping us. And so if we can learn first to calm our hearts and then listen from that point of stillness and calmness for the guidance of God. Now that guidance is not going to come as a loud voice, it's going to come as a very quiet voice and sometimes not even in words. And so we do our best to listen and we don't always listen clearly and sometimes God doesn't want to give the answer really clearly. It's just God wants us to start acting and we do have to start acting at some point. And so that's the third step. First one is ask, second is listen, third is to act. And so we do have to act at times without really being sure that we really did hear it right or are feeling the, the guidance in the right way. And so when we do act, take a step. And this is what I've learned with changing the direction of our monastery is because we made some big changes and we shifted and we moved all the monastery monks here to Chandigarh. And I'm in Mumbai right now, but in Chandigarh where we are, we've bought some land and are, are getting starting to just build from scratch a new kind of monastery. But along the way, we were never presumptuous. Here's the answer, we're gonna do it. Instead we think, okay, this feels like this is what God and Guru are guiding us. Let's take a step in that direction and then stop and ask and listen again and take another step. And if it feels right and if the results seem to be good, then keep going in that direction. And, and always be ready to listen and change direction and maybe take a step and realize, okay, this, this is not working and maybe I didn't hear it right. And this is the process that we went through. And it's worked really, really well because when you're, when you're trying to do something new, not everything's going to be in the book. You really have to, the, the application of it, the way that we do it, the steps that we take, <clears throat> we do have to work with this inner guidance of God and the Guru. And so really apply that in life. Praying and asking sensitively, calmly, <clears throat> calmly, quietly listening, and then taking steps. And this you'll find is that because people sometimes, they wait for an answer before they act. And so they just are frozen. They're just stuck and the energy is not moving and nothing's happening. And we do have to act. You know, if we're just stuck and frozen, the energy stops. And I was talking about this once at our Ananda village in California. And this older woman who was a very um, simple person who came from the deep south of the United States and had a very thick southern accent. And she said, that's exactly right. The way my grandfather always told me was, you can't steer a parked car. And this is very true. We have to start acting and moving. And you can't steer a parked car because you need to start moving the energy to know what direction to go. And it's a very sensitive process of steering a car, or in this case, a, a group of people or our own lives. And so it's a sensitive process. So again, asking, listening, steering, 
feeling sensitively, if we're, we're going in the right direction. And this is the process of really learning to develop our own intuition and intuitive awareness and sensitivity of how to work with divine guidance. And Swami Kriyananda talks about accepting divine guidance willingly, because this sometimes we get divine guidance and God advises us and we don't like the advice and it's not something that's comfortable and we want to do something else. And so how do we accept willingly? And Swamiji writes, what then is the final practice listed in this sutra? What does it mean to accept the divine will willingly? Since karma is God's law, we must always be open to it, accept its intricate play willingly, and remain ever even-minded throughout. There are, of course, many kinds of karma, good, bad, and indifferent. We should identify ourselves with none of them, accept with an even mind whatever comes to us in life, and not allow ourselves to become overexcited by anything. And this comes about, again, by calming what Yoganandaji called the reactive process. And when we can calm this reactive process, which again is just the, the emotional reactivity of the heart, then that removes the static again, that when the voice of God comes or that intuition comes, we start to be able to hear it more easily. But it also helps us to not respond from emotion and it helps us to respond from the true inner guidance that we're getting from God. And how often are we swayed by our emotions and how many mistakes in our life, unfortunately, we've made in you know, saying the wrong thing to someone out of anger and hurting them and, and even you know, destroying a relationship just by some emotional reactivity of the heart. And if we could have only have just taken a deep breath, calmed ourselves, and understood that maybe there was a higher way to approach this, a more divine way, we could have saved ourselves a lot of suffering, other people too. And so this reactive process that Yoganandaji talked about, it is purely our emotional reactions to things that happen. And it's all in here. The way Swamiji once put it one time, he said that we think that all the, the karma, all the stuff that's happening to us, that it's all out there. He said, it's not. It's all in here, in the reactions of our heart. And so when karma comes, when events come, yes, we have to deal with them, what's going on out there with a person, with a situation, but really look within. And if we can calm this reactivity and it doesn't mean deaden the feelings in our heart. It means to calm the emotions in the heart. But when we can do that in the right way, then we start to connect with divine feeling. And divine feeling is simply a higher octave of human feeling. And it's calm and it's always directed upwards from the heart up rather than from the emotional human energies into human and emotional involvement. And those divine feeling qualities are divine love and divine joy. And so when we can meditate more often, practice consciously tuning in 
to that love in the heart, that joy in the heart, we will find that we start to identify more with those things. In a way, this really is what meditation is, is we're, we're, we're changing our identification from this little self and you know, my faults and my you know, pride and my perceived strengths and good qualities. And what we're doing is that we're turning our identification from the little limited human ways, even good human ways, and turning our identification to this divinity within. And this is why when we meditate and commune with God as divine love and divine joy and spend time deeply, uh, spending time immersed in that love and joy as much as we can during deep meditation, then we find that we start identifying with that more. We, we really start becoming that. This is yoga, which is first you know, trying to concentrate on divine love or divine joy, meditating on it, which means to start really you know, trying to become absorbed in it, and then truly becoming absorbed in it and finally merging into it and becoming fully identified with it. And this is why great saints, again, are they're joyful under all circumstances, they're unconditionally loving and giving under all circumstances. And it's because they're no longer identifying with their little self, emotions, reactivity, the reactive process. They have become one with these divine qualities of divine love and divine joy. And this is the practice of yoga. It's using meditation to change our identification, to learn to control these inner energies. And then, yes, we have to deal with real life and with the applications and the practice of these things. And that's again why Patanjali calls these things the, the real practice of yoga because it is the practical application of these great teachings. And it comes again with the balance and the, both of these things together. We, it's difficult to do just one or the other. If we just get caught up in activity and outwardness, we lose that center. If we just withdraw into ourselves, we don't fully overcome our karmas by, by practicing in action. Krishna teaches this in the Gita, that we have to act to go beyond the need for action. And we have to live in this world. As long as we're breathing and our heart is beating, we're, we're acting. So you know, we have a, a duty to act. But yoga teaches us, again, how to work with these inner energies, how to change our identification to the divine self, and then how to apply these things in our outward life. So let's end with just a few minutes of meditation. We can tune in to this feeling of the divine in our hearts, express our gratitude to these great sages, Patanjali, these great masters of yoga, Yoganandaji, others. Offer that gratitude from the heart upwards And let's each just pray individually. Ask God or the Guru, guide me, guide my life. You can offer a specific question that you have 
and from that calm center in the heart, we can listen for an answer more as a feeling. And even if we don't feel the answer, we can ask the divine, guide me, guide my actions. Even if I don't feel your presence, guide me as I'm acting, protect me from my own faults and mistakes. Make right my deficiencies as Krishna advises. And now let's just spend a few minutes in silence, feeling that touch of grace in our hearts. <laughs> 